0: You're listening to Audible Impact. I'm Sierra Williams, editor of the LSE's Impact of Social Sciences blog. We publish daily posts from leading academics on the visibility, evaluation, and diversity of social science research. Visit us at lseimpact.com. In this podcast, we explore pro-social behavior, putting the me-search in research, and what the 18th century chemist Louis Pasteur has to say about impact.
1: Hello. Hello. Uh, we are doing a short study.
0: You're doing a okay. okay. I understand. Call centers. Me. Does the name conjure annoyance, frustration, or perhaps even depression? Well, you aren't alone. Just ask a call center employee on how their job makes them feel.
1: When I first uh, arrived at the call center, there was a sign that one of the callers had posted on his desk, which said, Doing a good job here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. You get a warm feeling, but no one else notices.
0: That's Adam Grant, Professor of Organizational Psychology at Wharton Business School. As a graduate student, Adam conducted a study at a fundraising call center. The study looked at productivity in the workplace and offered numerous methodological advantages.
1: There were daily quantifiable performance metrics that could be tracked. And there was a large enough sample of callers that we could actually do some randomized controlled field experiments and try to figure out what would actually boost the motivation of these callers?
0: At 31, Adam is the youngest tenured professor at Wharton. He is also one of the most prolific scholars in his field, and is rumored to be one of Google's favorite psychologists. In his new book, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success, he reflects on a decade of his research. Yes, a decade. Some of his formative experiments were conducted as an undergraduate. In it, Adam reverses the commonly held antisocial assumptions in business. Namely, that jerks succeed and nice guys and ladies finish last. Early assessment of the university call center revealed high turnover and a highly unmotivated staff.
1: The callers had no idea what purpose the money they raised was serving and who was actually benefiting from it. And I'd been interested in that area of research as I got into the call center and trying to figure out what would happen actually if we connected people to the impact of their jobs.
0: So Adam and his team of researchers conducted an experiment in the call center.
1: We randomly assigned some of the callers to meet a scholarship recipient who had benefited from their work. And that was the beginning of a series of experiments to try to figure out, okay, why does it matter to be connected to the people who benefit from your work, and and what role does that play in our, our motivation and our job performance?
0: In addition to finding an effective motivation for the callers, Adam also observed that callers fit into one of three personality types, givers, matchers, and takers.
1: Some of the callers were you know, very much in what I would call a taker mindset, which is I want to make as much money as possible and basically contribute as little as I can back. The majority of the callers were what I would describe as matchers, basically trying to keep an even balance of give and take. Quid pro quo, reciprocity, whatever their managers and their colleagues gave to them, they would contribute back. And then there was this third group of, of callers that I describe as the givers, who were the ones that were most pro-socially motivated, who were there because they wanted to make a difference in the lives of other people.
0: Givers are often perceived as being pushovers, and in a way they did live up to the stereotype. Givers underperformed compared to the matchers and takers, but...
1: But once we brought in the scholarship recipient and they were able to see here's how my work helps others, they actually caught up and ended up outperforming the takers and the matchers by quite a bit. So
0: given the right type of motivation, givers will rise to the top. In the case of the call center, this meant corporate fundraising revenues dramatically increased, which raises the issue that companies may be able to exploit pro-social tendencies in order to extract more out of their employees. But for Grant, it is the psychosocial mechanism itself that deserves greater attention. So we'll leave our Marxist critique for another day. Rather than being profit-driven, pro-social motivation is about cultivating deeper and more reciprocal networks.
1: Givers are much more likely to form meaningful connections to help in a way that shows genuine concern and care, and then also to help a much broader group of people, which then can facilitate, obviously, access to creative and innovative ideas.
0: So what determines whether a giver is a winner or loser? Adam's message is give, but not to the point of martyrdom.
1: The failed givers are the ones who don't have any concern for their own well-being or their own accomplishments. And they end up basically becoming altruistic to the point of self-sacrifice, where they put other people so far ahead of themselves that they either run out of time and energy and, and burn themselves out so they can't get their own work done efficiently and effectively, or they end up becoming doormats and pushovers at the hands of takers because they're, they're basically willing to help people who are ready to take advantage of them.
0: In fact, Adam has a hang-up about his work being seen as a mere study of altruism.
1: I did get introduced a while back as the guy who studies altruism in the Temple of Greed. And I didn't know which I was more offended by, calling my research the study of altruism or calling Wharton the temporal of greed.
0: Now our mostly academic listeners might be wondering how this applies to a university setting. What does an academic giver look like?
1: Well, I think that in a service economy, giving is about relationships. It's about helping people solve problems, it's about, you know, if if you are doing direct, let's say, customer service in a hotel or in a call center, it's about showing empathy and concern and basically providing a lot of emotional support. Whereas in a knowledge economy, obviously, I think giving, giving takes on much more of sort of an intellectual quality. It's about figuring out, okay, what information do I have access to? What expertise can I gather? And then how can I share that most effectively with the people around me? It made me feel more cerebral, as opposed to rel- relational and emotional.
0: In other words, an academic giver looks a lot like Adam Grant himself. A recent New York Times Magazine feature on Grant profiled a professor perpetually at the service of his students and colleagues. He rarely says no. Whether offering dissertation guidance, opening up his contacts to students, or providing careers advice, he's also a proactive giver. Once a month, he emails a contact he's lost touch with or hasn't heard from in a while. And asks what they are up to, what they are working on, and how he can help. So is Adam advocating for people to be more like him, the endless giver, through his own research? He admits that a lot of his work comes from introspection. Adam discusses one of his early personal encounters with the influence of pro social behavior. As a nineteen year old, he found himself unmotivated and unsuccessful at selling advertisements for the travel guide series, Let's Go. But in less than a year, and still a teenager, he was the director of advertising, overseeing a budget of $1 million. The secret of his success?
1: I noticed that a lot of the editors who would work in Cambridge, Massachusetts all summer, uh, which was at times almost as gray as the other Cambridge, that they would they would start out really motivated. And, you know, they would just have this incredibly clear sense of how they had traveled with Let's Go Books. They knew lots of people who had and you know this was going to allow people to not only travel safely, but also just experience a culture in a much more personal and authentic way than they could have without the book. And that would often last for a few weeks or maybe a month or so. And then the summer would start to drag on and you, know, you get all this copy uh, that was you know, written on chicken buses and it's very hard to read and you're piecing together details about laundromats and the editors would just lose their motivation. And what I wanted to do at the time was, I I thought, well, every once in a while, I would receive a letter from a traveler who said, you know, let's go save my life. Or, you know, because of the, you know, the insights that I I got from Let's Go, I, you know, I ended up meeting uh, some people and one of them ended up becoming my husband or wife. People would just talk about what the book meant to them, how much they loved the wit and the humor and the stories and the insights. And I thought that the editors really lost sight of that, and they were disconnected from their impact. And that experience was what ended up inspiring me to begin studying relational job design and pro-social motivation and, and really got me wondering what would happen if I connected the Let's Go editors to the actual readers who are benefiting from the books.
0: His experience at Let's Go became part of a prolonged interest in pro-social behavior, and he continues to juxtapose his own experiences with his research. But there are some limits to this approach.
1: I agree with Dan McAdams, who has made the point that, you know, sometimes it's really short-sighted as a field to only do research, that if we can't escape, you know, our own sort of foibles and trials and tribulations and puzzles then we might miss out on a lot of what matters in the world. And so I think it's important to also say, you know, not just what's interesting and vexing to me, but let's also figure out what are employees and organizations really struggling with? And, you know, what are the kinds of of phenomena that that are really powerful in their experiences? Let's study those, too.
0: So it's clear that Grant's own personal investment in the benefits of pro-social behavior is a key feature of his academic success and impact. But if simply understanding the impact of one's research is the answer to professional academic success... Doesn't that mean applied researchers are necessarily at an advantage to basic researchers? Not necessarily. For Grant, the dichotomy between applied and basic research is a false one.
1: I guess I'm more of a fan of uh, of two-by-twos than I am of continua in the social sciences. And the one that I love here is Donald Stokes' Pasteur's Quadrant. For those who haven't read it, basically says, look, you know, a lot of people think that on one end of a spectrum you have basic research and on the other end you have applied research. And you have a choice then. How much do you want to contribute to fundamental knowledge versus how much do you want to impact the world? And, of course, that, you know, it's, it's not an either or. It can be a both And. When you draw the two by two, Pasteur's Quadrant, as Stokes called it, is the high, high cell where you're making fundamental contributions to our scientific knowledge and our understanding of the phenomenon that you study. And at the same time, you're also generating useful applications that can benefit people out in the world. And I think he chose Pasteur's Quadrant as the label because Louis Pasteur was a, a great example of that. Right, figuring out how, in a very practical and applied sense, to you know make it possible for us to store milk, being one of his major contributions, but also fundamental contributions to germ theory and our understanding of, of very basic biological processes. And I think, it, as scholars, we should all try to live in Pasteur's quadrant more often. And there may be two ways we can do that. One is to actually try to ask questions that you know in and of themselves, at their core, belong in that category.
0: And this brings us back to one of the major themes at play in Adam's giver model. It's not just how much you give to the research community. Impact is just as much about smart giving. By actively seeking out research embedded in Pasture's quadrant, Adam has found his own work on workplace motivation to be both highly meaningful and successful. And he remains a fascinating case study in the impact of social sciences. As a final question, we asked Adam what he thought about Twitter as a mode of reciprocal academic networking. This is one area where Adam admits he's behind.
1: I've I've really found it tricky though to figure out how do you be a giver on Twitter. And in fact, when, when my book first came out, I had somebody who I'd never met write a little post on Twitter that said, you know, gee, Adam Grant, you know, writes a lot about giving, and yet he doesn't follow all of his followers. And I, I was I was really kind of intrigued and sort of frustrated by not knowing how to handle that and after a while I I realized well I don't do that because that's being a peer matcher if you follow me I will follow you not because I'm interested in what you have to say but because I feel obligated to reciprocate evenly and I don't I don't think that's the point right I think that I should follow people that maybe other people would be interested in who you know kind of are are following the kinds of ideas that I follow
0: You are listening to Adam Grant talk about his new book, Give and Take, a revolutionary approach to success. That's all for this episode of Audible Impact. This podcast was produced by Cheryl Brumley, and for a full list of the music and sound used, visit our blog at lseimpact.com. I'm Sierra Williams. Thanks for listening.